All right, we've got about 16 or so minutes for our third and final segment today, so I want to just go through some miscellaneous items. How about this one? L.A. County rescinded its 1942 vote urging Japanese internment. According to the L.A. Daily News, Los Angeles County Supervisors voted unanimously Wednesday to rescind a resolution approved 70 years earlier that supported the internment of Japanese Americans at the onset of World War II. Well, I guess this one comes from the better late than never file. I do want to note that I was singled out, like many Americans uh, a couple years back, for the census long form. The Census Bureau thought that I should spend a lot of extra time telling them all about everybody that might live in my house and yada, 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 yada. And I wrote him a letter back saying, back in World War II, the Census Bureau turned over information to federal authorities that allowed the imprisonment of Japanese Americans. I conclude, therefore, that the Census Bureau cannot be trusted with personal information. I therefore have given you my name, my address, and my date of birth, which I believe is about all you're entitled to. If this is a problem for you, please contact my family lawyer, Robert Sakai. And you know what? I got a follow-up phone call from the Census Bureau, <laughs> but uh, they were very noncommittal on the message they left on my answering machine, and they never called again. And I certainly never called them back. And in a related piece uh, on the topic of racial discrimination... There was an op-ed piece in the San Francisco Chronicle by Amer Arayam, described as former secretary of the UN Special Committee Against Apartheid and adjunct professor of political science at Diablo Valley College, on the fact that it was 25 years currently after Paul Simon's landmark album, Graceland. Mr. Arayam took the view that uh, it was a great success. Mr. Arayam took the view that the United Nations' actions uh, to to boycott South Africa contributed to the end of apartheid. And I have to confess, I have mixed feelings about that. He noted that when singer Paul Simon decided to work on the Graceland album and visited South Africa for that purpose, the special committee faced an important question. Should his name be included in a register of cultural and sports figures that were not boycotting South Africa? Apparently, the special committee was aware of the fact that Simon was not performing to segregated audiences and that his explanation was that he went there to help South African black musicians, which God knows he certainly did. But he noted that the special committee decided to put his name on the register because his trip to South Africa was a violation of the boycott, despite his good intentions. I had a chance to visit South Africa at the end of the apartheid era, and I decided that it would probably do more good than harm for me to go there and spend money there. I feel the same way about the United States' boycott of, or embargo, rather, against Cuba. I guess it amounts to the same thing. But Mr. Arayim, as a great believer in, in boycotts, had an interesting conclusion to his piece. He said, in view of the failure of the United Nations to end the Israeli occupation of the Palestinian territories, there are movements in Europe, the United States, and other parts of the world to apply the same measures that helped end apartheid to terminate the Israeli occupation of the Palestinian territories. He said these include campaigns for the boycott of corporations assisting the Israeli occupation of the territories, as well as the isolation of Israeli academics and others engaged in activities in support of the continuing occupation of the Palestinian territories. He said it's a fact that boycott, divestments, and sanctions are the most important peaceful means to end stalemate on the international and even local levels. It's hoped that these peaceful means will help in establishing peace and justice in the Holy Land. And I must say that there are certainly parallels uh, 
deep parallels between the apartheid regime of South Africa and the Israeli government. I don't think it's an exaggeration to refer to uh, the treatment of the Palestinians as the Israeli version of apartheid. And I hope that Mr. Arayim's right on both counts. I hope that we will see some uh, pressure via boycott, divestment, and sanctions. And I hope that these will indeed uh, establish more peace and justice in the Holy Land. That's something I think we can all hope for. All right, I got a bunch of files here on uh, on economic uh, chicanery here in the U.S. and elsewhere, and I just can't resist some of these. How about this piece? Dale Kastler article from the Sacramento Bee. Alfred Villalobos, the central figure in the California Public Employees Retirement System bribery investigation, has won and lost millions gambling in Nevada's casinos. Now he's suing two of his favorite haunts for $600,000, demanding his money back. Well, this reminds me of that Albert Brooks movie where he finds out that his wife has a gambling problem and spends all their vacation funds and most of their funds in a a casino, and he decides the the solution is to go in, talk to the boss there, and say, you know what, I think it'd be good if you just gave the money back. Note the piece by Dale Kessler, the lawsuits filed last week in U.S. bankruptcy court are an outgrowth of the Lake Tahoe businessman's two-year-old bankruptcy case. Villalobos is trying to retrieve money he paid to the two casinos to settle gambling debts in April 2010, two months before he filed for Chapter 11. He wants the El Dorado Hotel Casino in Reno to return $500,000. He also wants hundred grand back from the Mont Bleu Resort Casino and Spa in Lake Tahoe. Why is he bothering to sue, ask the piece? Well, because he has little choice. A debtor has a legal obligation to make sure creditors are paid as much as possible and everyone is treated fairly. The 600000 is in play because of the timing of Villalobos' payments. Federal laws generally frown on debtors paying selected creditors fewer than 90 days before they file for bankruptcy. Villalobos paid the gambling debts 43 days before filing. All right, I just have a suggestion to make. Uh, you know... If you run the California Public Employees Retirement System, I think it's a good idea to have executives that aren't gambling addicts. I think I also have to quote from a Viewpoints piece by Dan Moraine, also in the Sacramento Bee. Quote, Richard Roth is a retired two-star general in the Air Force Reserve and a lawyer who defends businesses. He's a former Riverside Chamber of Commerce chairman who's married to the Riverside Chamber's president. He sits on the California Chamber of Commerce's board. He's also a Democrat who wants to become a state senator, despite his obvious intelligence. He goes on, you think Roth would be the sort of guy the California Association of Realtors, Farmers, Insurance, Chevron, Philip Morris, Anthem, Blue Cross, and California Chamber of Commerce might welcome to the legislature. But you wouldn't be thinking like the high-powered political consultants who run Sacramento, nor could you guess their line of attack. Apparently money from Philip Morris, Chevron, the Realtors, and others paid for mailers delivered to Democratic voters in the days leading up to last week's primary, attacking Roth as a corporate tycoon and corporate defender. Operating through independent campaign committees, as is all the rage these days, corporate consultants figured that by tearing down Roth, they would be helping the other Democrat, Steve Clute, win one of the top two slots in last week's primary. They figured that the Republican candidate, Assemblyman Jeff Miller, would have an easier time beating Clute. They're probably right. Clute's a liberal who has run before and lost. Roth foiled it all by winning the second-place spot easily, though he will face a tough race against Miller. Noted Dan Moraine, the corporations didn't spend the money indirectly. Instead, they laundered it through, excuse me, contributed to independent campaign committees, the heads of which declined to talk to me. One is California Senior Advocates League, which received $650,000. 
506,000 of which came from another group, California Now, a political action committee run by Rob Lapsley. Lapsley is a longtime Republican operative who is president of the California Business Roundtable, which represents big business and used to be the California Chamber of Commerce's political director. Man, something has to be done about Citizens United and what this has done to the fact, uh, and what this has done to our political uh, uh, system in America. We not only allow corporations to donate virtually unlimited amounts of money, the Republicans are working to make sure those donations remain secret. Does this mean our long experiment uh, with democracy here in America has come to an end? Well, <laughs> some wonder. Because there's been a lot of interest lately in, uh, in cheating. We've seen what happened to our economy in the wake of uh, cheaters on Wall Street doing all sorts of chicanery. And people are taking a, really a hard look at why it is we cheat and why it is we deceive ourselves and how it is our institutions really fail to take that into account. The Economist had a piece by Schumpeter talking about dishonesty in business. He noted that while contract disputes seldom produce courtroom drama, there was an exception recently in a court case between B Sky B, a broadcaster, and Electronic Data Services, EDS. Mark Howard, a lawyer for Sky, cross-examined Joe Galloway, an EDS executive, about his MBA from Concordia College in the U.S. Virgin Islands. Galloway recalled his student days in loving detail, from the college building to the hours he'd spent sweating over his books. But a few days later, Mr. Howard presented the court with an MBA certificate that his pet schnauzer had earned from the very same diploma mill. And apparently that schnauzer had earned an even higher mark in his GPA than had the EDS executive. Noted Schumpeter, people have always lied and cheated, and business people may have lied lied and cheated more than most. In a survey of American graduate students, 56% of those pursuing an MBA admitted to having cheated in the previous year, compared with 47% of other students, which I have to stop and go, 47% of other students and 56% of MBA students? Woo! Schumpeter cites a curious new book by Dan Ariely titled The Honest Truth About Dishonesty. Notes this may invigorate, reinvigorate our discussion of dishonesty in the business world. He, apparently Mr. Ariely is a social psychologist who spent years studying cheating. He also teaches at Duke University's Fuqua School of Business. After studying the matter, he contends the vast majority of people are prone to cheating. He also thinks that the, they're more willing to cheat on other people's behalf than their own. People routinely struggle with two opposing emotions. They view themselves as honorable, but they also want to enjoy the benefits of a little cheating, especially if it reinforces their belief that they are a bit more intelligent or popular than they really are. They reconcile these two emotions by fudging, adding a few points to a self-administered IQ test, for example, or forgetting to put a few coins in a box that was supposed to take your change. They note that the amount of fudging that goes on depends on the circumstances. People are more likely to lie or cheat if others are lying or cheating. Or if a member of another social group visibly flouts the rules, like students wearing a sweatshirt from a rival university. They're more likely to lie and cheat if they're in a foreign country rather than at home. They're more likely to lie and cheat if they've been stiffed by the victim of their misbehavior. For example, companies that keep customers in voicemail hell. Those are frequent victims. The piece goes on. Mr. Ariely observes that good sales reps understand a lot of this without attending his lectures. Customers like to think well of themselves, but they also like small bribes. The key is to convince them that an inducement is not really a bribe. 
So drug reps make doctors feel beholden by inviting them to give lectures in golf resorts or by offering to fund their terribly important research. Doctors naturally think their later decisions are taken entirely with their patients' best interests in mind. In fact, they may be kidding themselves and cheating their patients. And following up on this, New Scientist magazine went to uh, Dan Airely himself to ask him some questions about what he's learned about honesty and dishonesty. New Scientist starting, started off asking Airely about some bestsellers he wrote about irrationality and why that interests him. He said, I care about the mistakes people make for two reasons. The first is when people violate standard economic theory because a lot of our legislation and the way companies think assume that people are perfectly rational. The second is that if people don't understand how they behave, they get into trouble. Asked about the real world and cheating, Airely said, in banking, the rules are very unclear. And because of that, there are a lot of things you can do and still feel good about yourself. We did a study asking people to imagine being the head of a bank. And they could do things like increase fees and charges. In banking lingo, revenue enhancement. The moment you tell people they're working for a company and that the motive is to maximize shareholder value, they're much more willing to cheat. He notes that shareholder value will allow you to justify lots of things. Your bonus is tied to the stock, but you're not saying, I'm doing things to get the bonus. You say, I'm maximizing shareholder value. Why these high salaries? Why it's economics. If the market wouldn't bear it, people wouldn't pay. Asked, what if you take money out of the equation? Airely said, one of the most frightening experiments we did was when we got people to cheat for tokens that they could then exchange for money. When they reported how many of these mathematical questions they got correct, they doubled the cheat. You know, people were allowed to self-grade to, uh, to, get the, to earn themselves these tokens. He says, the act of lying for something that is one step removed from money relieved them of their moral obligations. Think about what happens with mortgage-backed securities and stock options. Well, I think we have had a chance to think about that, and I think that uh, Dan Airely is on to something. But I think we're just about out of time on today's show. We want to talk about a wonderful photo taken here at UC Davis about a bee stinging a person. According to the bee, UC Davis communications specialist Kathy Keatley Garvey in the Department of Entomology has taken about a million photos of honeybees in her lifetime, but she said, but this current snapshot won the first place gold feature photo award in the Association for Communication Excellence competition. It's a pretty cool photo. Shows a bee stinging a guy's arm and leaving that bit of abdominal tissue behind as it's flying away. We've always heard that honeybees uh, die because they leave a bit of abdomen behind, and we need to ask somebody why that hasn't been evolved away from. I mean, after all, there's plenty of wasps out there that can sting you and they don't die from it. Why do honeybees? I don't know. But it's a great photo. You should check it out on the web, and we're going to try to get someone to talk about it on next week's show. I'll take a quote from my friend Michael McGrath, who, uh, when he's not sure how to proceed with the conversation, we'll usually open with, How about them giants? So, how about them giants? Apparently, San Francisco Giants pitcher Matt Cain did last week what uh, no one managed to do in the entire history of the Giants franchise, which goes back, I don't know, 130 years or so. Matt Cain pitched a perfect game. 27 batters up, 27 batters down. Nobody got a hit. This doesn't happen very often. In fact, Matt Cain's perfect game was only the 22nd in the entire history of the major leagues. Kane struck out 14 in his effort and apparently got some really outstanding catches from his outfielders to, uh, to keep that perfect game alive. Take me out to the ball game 
Take me out with the crowd Buy me some peanuts and Cracker Jacks I don't care if I ever get back Cause it's root, root, root for the home team If they don't win, it's a shame Cause it's one, two, three strikes You're out at the old ball game This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm your host, Douglas Everett, and we'll see you next week at the same time, at which time we will relate some tales of adventures in New York City. At least I hope so. We'll see you then. Cause it's one, two.